Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy, and it is good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope all is well out there. Hope you're dealing with the holiday chaos as best you can. It's a lot. I'm dealing with it. I feel like most of us are dealing with it in some form. But to that end, I do have an episode for you that could potentially be of use. My guest is Melissa Broder. And we're going to be having a craftwork conversation called How Meditation Can Inform Creative Writing. Melissa Broder is an old friend of mine. She has guested on this show a number of times, but today marks her Craftwork debut. Many of you know her, many of you know her work, but you might not know that she is a dedicated meditator, as am I. We, ha- we uh, have this in common. It is a shared enthusiasm, so it made some sense for us to talk about it. Melissa Broder is the author most recently of the novel Death Valley, which was published in October by Scribner. Her other novels are called Milkfed and The Pisces. She has also published an essay collection called So Sad Today, as well as five poetry collections, including Super Doom and Last Sext. My conversation with Melissa Broder about how meditation can inform creative writing is coming up in just a couple of minutes. So before we get going, a quick reminder about my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. You can subscribe for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. That is where the newsletter lives online. It's pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to hear from me in your inbox once a week and keep up with me and the show and everything, just go to bradlisty.substack.com. Likewise, there is a Patreon community for the Other People podcast. Did you know that? It's a great way to show your support, help keep this program going into the future, help me continue to do the work that I love to do. You can join the Patreon over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get a tote bag, a t-shirt, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, all of that stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the debut novel, The Liberators by E.J. Coe. 
the official December pick of the Other People Book Club. Spanning two continents and four generations, The Liberators exquisitely captures two Korean families forever changed by fateful decisions made in love and war. This is a very beautiful and moving novel, an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. That's The Liberators, the debut novel by E.J. Ko, available now from Tin House. I should add that E.J. Ko was recently a guest on this program, so you can check out her interview if you want to. All right, so I think that does it for preliminaries. It's time for today's main event, my craftwork conversation with Melissa Broder. Once again, her latest novel is called Death Valley, available now from Scribner. And once again, we're going to be talking about how meditation can inform creative writing. You will notice that I have chosen very carefully musical accompaniment which speaks to today's topic at hand are you not feeling soothed right now by my peaceful and concentrated baritone seeing the world through your third eye breathing in and out feeling an expansive sense of creative possibility I mean I could continue like this but I will not uh, let's get to today's conversation Melissa Broder, how meditation can possibly, possibly, we'll see, it's up to you, how meditation can inform creative writing. Always fun to talk with Melissa Broder. So when I got sober in 2005, I sort of needed, I needed a high, right? Like I am not, I'm not very comfortable with reality. I'm not very, I've never been comfortable living in a body. And so I needed to connect to something like greater than myself, right? And so I uh, began practicing meditation to find, I guess, to connect to something like bigger than me. And that was, yeah, and that's how I got started. So for, for years, I did like the Melissa Broder method of meditation, which was basically just like a cobbled together amount uh, cobbled together different methods of like guided meditations from YouTube and things that I had read. And then, and I was on this gratitude list with uh, three friends and they were all doing transcendental meditation. And I was like, fuck these bitches, like with their paid meditation and paying for your spiritual education. And then I was like, because in order to to learn TM, you you pay a certain amount, right? You pay like a percentage of your like a you basically they do it on a sliding scale, but it's pay it it's there's a fee for the first time and then no more fees. So, but I tried it. I decided to try it because I I guess like five years ago I felt like well I pay a lot of money for my hair color. Why not invest in my spiritual education? And I really like TM. It really moved the needle with my anxiety. And I practiced that for about five years. And then about a year ago, uh, I had like a mild to moderate, like nervous breakdown-ish. And uh, I needed something. I needed a new modality. And so I needed to like, I needed something that I could connect to 24 hours a day. And with TM, it's, there's this mantra 
you have a mantra, but you don't do, you don't say the mantra to yourself when you're not in meditation. You only say the mantra when you are in the meditation. But so I needed to connect to something that I could connect to all the time. So I started practicing shamatha and vipassana style meditation where you connect to the breath because I felt like I needed this, I needed a home inside myself. I needed an anchor and the breath became that anchor. And it was something that I could tether to even when I wasn't in meditation. Okay. So let's go backwards a little bit. Cause I just want to know like what it was that introduced you or who it was that introduced you to meditation period in the beginning. Like, was it something you read about? Was there a person in your life who was like, Hey, you should try this. Like, what was it? I think it's just the path of my sobriety that I'm on. A lot of my sober friends were meditating and I found that I really needed to build in pause and, you know, I have not become enlightened. I, so I guess I've been meditating for, I guess it's been like, it, well, I've been sober 18 years, but I think I started meditating like a year later. Uh, so I've been meditating for like 17 years and I haven't become enlightened. In fact, like I feel like I'm someone who really needs meditation where there is, I, there are some people who are just sort of like temperamentally, they probably don't ever need to meditate. You know, like their life is like my, my friend Frank, uh, who is always, he's like this very jolly man, lives, uh, lives in Queens. He's always somehow like when New York One is doing like a special on a bakery, it's always, Frank is always in the bakery, you know, <laughs> like Frank somehow is always in the bakery. He always happens to be behind the counter, like getting donuts. And like Frank, I don't think Frank ever needs to meditate because like Frank is meditation. I am like the opposite of meditation. So I really need it. As do I. Yeah. I mean, but Brad, I, the, I see you as, it's funny because I see you as someone who is very grounded, but how long have you been practicing? I have been meditating since I was like 21 years old, 2021 20, in Boulder. So and Boulder, I mean, I don't even have to ask how you got into it. Boulder. Exactly. I mean, it was like, I mean, I don't know what it's like now because the town has gotten a lot bougier and it's like the tech, it's like a tech hub now. But when I was there, it wasn't. And it was definitely a very Buddhist town. And there was a lot of Naropa University influence and Chogyam Trungpa you know, influence, which I had, I didn't know what either of those things even was when I got there, but you walk around Pearl street in Boulder and there were like three Tibetan gift shops, like separate ones, all thriving, you know, like, <laughs> and so it was around. And then I took like a religious studies course, like as an elective. And then I had a bad back in college even, and I started doing yoga. And I think like the beginning of any kind of mindfulness meditation practice for me was mostly, but not all centered on movement meditation, just because I was young and jumpy and I liked the exercise part of it, but it also delivered like a good yoga class could settle me down. I noticed it. Um, so that was like point of entry and then like dedicated sitting started later, you know, in my like late twenties and then onward. Did you so, meditate this morning? Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. You didn't. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I try to do it every day. I'm mostly successful, but sometimes life gets in the way or especially like the evening meditation. I, if you trying to do two a day, I know that with TM, that's sort of the program I have, I have always found that the evening sit is harder to bat a high average on just because you get caught up in your stuff. Well, you have children too. I've, I'm usually, I do like twice a day, but then I allow myself 
two of the days a week to skip one of them so that it's not so that there's not a perfectionist element. But I try to do twice a day. But this morning I was like Google like online shopping got me before the meditation got me. And that's the end. That's (laughs) That's the the death knell, you know? I hear that. And I mean, I don't do, I mean, sometimes I do online shopping. I got to say, I'm not immune to that. Like, especially now that, cause I have the podcast on Instagram, fucking Instagram feeding me clothing advertisements and these people look fabulous. And I'm like, that sweater looks cool. You know, they get you. And then they know that you, that you even, not that you even clicked through or ordered it. They know if you like linger on it. So they start feeding you more of that stuff and that can suck you in. Yeah. It's, I, rem- I, I woke up this morning at, in a, in a cold, well, in, in like a hot sweat, it was like a tepid sweat and was like, <laughs> fuck, I didn't, I didn't get anything for my publishers or my agent. Like I didn't get them any presents for, for Christmas. So then I was like, must find the perfect candles. And I was like, oh. but you know what I have to say? I, I went through this odyssey the past year or two of like changing psych meds and it's been like pretty, pretty rough. And I'm finally on like a good, I'm finally on like a good cocktail, but there was like a period for like the past year and a half where like online shopping didn't work. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was just like, why, like it was very, like, why do we go on was like eclipsing any desire to online shop. And so I actually feel as though I'm very relieved to be like taking refuge once again in superficial bullshit. Like it feels (laughs) like it's like, that feels like mental health to me right now. You know, it's like, it's like typical, and I mean, look, it's also seasonally appropriate right now. Totally. Right? But I'm interested to know, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you had like a, a, an almost nervous breakdown or this difficult <laughs> period where you had to like change psych meds. And that can be difficult for somebody because getting the cocktail right, I, you know, I know can be challenging. And when things are not in effect, if you have a difficult neurochemistry, then life can be harder than it otherwise would be. And so a question for you, because you're so productive and I think to the casual person, it's like, no, Melissa's got her shit together. She keeps churning out these great books and has her stuff together, but you're also dealing with life stuff that is very challenging and, uh, you know, like you're sober and that's been in effect for a long time, but maintaining that takes a lot of, uh, concerted effort and disciplined practice in its own right. I'm curious to know if during this period of transition, with psych meds and this kind of turbulence that you experienced in terms of your mental health, if you were meditating through that? I absolutely was. So basically what happened was, um, I'll give you like the, the two minute version and then I'll tell you how meditation came into play. So after my dad was in his accident he was in the ICU for six months and then- oh, Your dad had a car accident. My dad had a car accident in December of twenty. 20. And then he was in the ICU for six months during COVID. I was here, he was in Philadelphia and I couldn't see him for the first few months. And this is actually like the inspiration for my novel that came out recently, Death Valley. And so I, but then I was, and and I was like very much the rock of the family during that whole time. And then after he, when he, after he died within about two weeks, I was like, I didn't know how to sit with the grief now that he was gone. And I was scared. I was afraid that like my usual levels of anxiety and depression were like spawning new babies. Like it was just that it was like mutating. And I was just like, how long is this going to go on? You know, I didn't know how to just be with it. And so I became like obsessed with my own mental health. And um, about a year later, I found out that someone who had been very close to me 
uh, died of suicide. And then with, and then about six months later, we lost another friend to suicide. And I think like the confluence of those events, I became obsessed with, am I suicidal? This, it was like an, and, and I ended up about five months ago doing an intensive outpatient treatment for anxiety and depression, and then doing another intensive outpatient treatment for OCD. And I had to cancel my book tour. I didn't go on the book tour for Death Valley because of what I was dealing with. So, and was changing meds throughout all this time, which is really harrowing. And so throughout all of it, this is why I switched to the Vipassana because I really needed an anchor. I needed something that could be with me 24 hours a day, right? Like the, the mantra that I have with TM, I don't get to have that throughout the day. It's like, it's, it's recommended that you don't sit around saying this mantra over and over again. Also, as someone with prior undiagnosed OCD, you can turn anything into a compulsion. Like you can turn the best things into a compulsion. And this past year, I've been working on a journal project where I was like trying to solve my mood, trying to figure it out. And I'm not going to publish this journal, but I've decided not to because I, I had to stop doing it because it became so myopic and so hyper obsessive. But part of the journal project, this it was this trying to find a home within myself. And I was getting into Alan Watts and all these wonderful things, these things that in and of themselves, Zen breath counting is great different. Vipassana is amazing. TM is amazing. There are like so many wonderful modalities. And I'm of the belief that truth is one paths are many. But basically, I was looking for a solution to being a human being and a solution to feeling and to grief. And there's no solution to being a human being, right? Like even meditation in and of itself, monks practice for for years to, to not be scared of of death. And, and the flip side of that is the fear of life, right? So this idea that there's going to be some arrival, I think is so, is antithetical to the idea of, of meditation as a practice, right? It's all a practice. It's all a practice. And the way through is through, like, you know, the way to like transcend fear of death is to really confront your fear of death and to investigate it and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like there's a way, or, there's not like a workaround to any difficult human stuff in my understanding it's like that's part of what meditating meditating teaches you is that it's there's my shit there's my crazy brain like it's not going anywhere you sort of have to look at it and do the work there's no shortcuts no and i think the the, the only way through is through idea is very interesting in the sense of there's the there's a um you, with the only way through is through i i kept being like okay so am I through yet? Am I, you know, I'm like, I've got, when will this end? Right. There's this desire for this ending. And, um, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who I really like, you know, another Jubu. And he's, uh, he's like, we should say, you know, cause I'm, I am going to make us pause in a second and kind of go through some terms, uh, some, de and define some things for people who are listening, who might not be as immersed in all of this stuff or might be totally new to it. But Joseph Goldstein is one of the OG Western uh, purveyors of uh, like Buddhist psychology teaching, meditation practice. He helped found the Insight Meditation Society, which has one of the more noted and longstanding meditation centers out in Barrie, Massachusetts. Then there's Spirit Rock on the West Coast in the Bay Area. But he and like Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, all Jews, all Jew booze, right? 
like they were in like the the trajectory of the integration of eastern buddhist practice and psychology with the west in a general sense in the mid to late 20th century and now into the 21st century tracked with basically some baby boomers many of whom had had psychedelic experiences or not many of whom were in the peace corps like that was a trajectory that a lot of them followed they were in the peace corps they were assigned or chose to somehow be in southeast asia and they were then in close contact with buddhist culture and practitioners and teachers like right so that's how joseph got into it that's how jack got into it that's how sharon got into it and they like i don't was joseph a monk i don't know if he ordained but like some of these people actually ordained and were in robes for a period and then Joseph was in the Peace Corps, I believe. Sharon was studying at a at an an ashram. And then Jack was. Uh, I know Jack Cornfield was uh, in robes. He ordained and was studying under Ajahn Chah. So then they leave South after you know a certain amount of years, a number of years there. They then came back to the states. I think in the seventies. Yep. And then just started like, what? Well, what do we do now? And they kind of started this stuff from scratch and eventually raised money and built IMS out in Barrie, Massachusetts and started teaching and have real, they were the vanguard. And now of course, like there's a yoga studio on every corner and meditation is like sort of it's practiced everywhere. So it's really a great success story in terms of what they were able to do. Yeah. They're, I mean, Sharon Salzberg's mommy. She's mommy. Like I, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm like, please just like, like take me to your breast but (laughs) but um but joseph goldstein so that was a great explanation brad that was like a great history of um and then it was vipassana that was the style they they brought here and vipassana meditation is what insight meditation yes vipassana means insight yes it's insight meditation what does that even mean and i ask this like not even sure if i fully know so well, shamatha meditation is sort of is is like the first tier, and that's focusing on the breath. It's it's really just staying with the breath. V- uh, vipassana is sort of like the next step, if you will, and it's you start with the breath, and then you start to tune into different other parts of your body, and then you start to label your thoughts. And um, so it's sort of it's, but it's 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 mindfulness, really. It's it's mindfulness. But it starts with the breath. And I try to stay with the breath. I'm like, I, I can't get too into the labeling. That's also why like Buddhism, I'm not a Buddhist uh, because there's so many lists. I get like obsessed with the lists and then like I'm with my head, not with the heart. But but Joseph Goldstein had this beautiful, he, ha, he, has, he has a really great podcast and he had, there was one, it was about sitting with pain and sitting with emotional pain. And he was talking about when you sit with emotional pain, but like, and you're, but you're, but you're doing it with the intent that, like, okay, if I can just sit with this enough, right? Like, if I can just go through, I will come out the other side. Like that's sort of waiting for it to pass. And he's like, no, that's not what it is. It's, it's you're sitting for the sitting. Um, and I'm, I'm a big waiting for it to pass, or, or not waiting. I'm a big like, let me fix this, right? And I think meditation is the opposite, but of, of fixing, right? It's being, and being is hard. It is. I think like everything's impermanent, right? Everything. So we're all going to die. Every tree, you know, eventually the mountains are going to crumble into the sea, right? Like nothing is permanent in the, you know, in our universe that we can observe. 
And that was very Motown of you. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't that? Was that quick? Was I quoting a song? I don't know. The mountains crumble to the sea. Yeah, yeah that is a line. Okay, so I, I get that, right? That seems observably true. That's easy enough for me to grasp. But things like deep grief over the loss of a loved one or something along those lines. That isn't, I mean, I think that it, maybe the intensity can lessen or fluctuate, but there are certain things in human experience that feel pretty fixed. Like the loss of a parent, the grief that you feel over that, uh, that's never going to fully go away. And so meditation practice is looking at it, seeing it for what it is, noticing its fluctuations, and then hopefully getting to some kind of place of acceptance and helping you strengthen yourself so that you're able to carry it better. It's the kind of thing you carry with you at all for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. I mean, I think like it's a really big lesson for me, this desire to be done. Also the forevers and the nevers, like whenever I, any state that I'm in, I always believe it's going to be like this forever. You know, when it's a state of peace, I want peace like all the time, right? Especially, I think that's a very addict thing is is to want immunity to pain. I mean, I, I no human being enjoys pain. Some people enjoy pain, actually, I think. There are yeah. some people, but, you know, and, and, and sexually, um, especially, there's a, there's a whole community. But I think that like addicts are particularly sensitive. And so there is, and there's a fear of pain. Like I still feel like it, it's like 911, I felt a feeling, you know, that sort of a thing. And it's a lesson for me because met well first of all with my husband's disability which i wrote a, which is i i mean death valley is fiction my my newer novel is fiction but the protagonist has a disabled husband and you know one thing with like a long term disability i mean he's been he's been disabled as lo- as long as we've been together but it's progressive and so it, it's been about 20 years. And I, three months after my dad died, my husband's illness shifted again. And he now needs a wheelchair in order to walk a couple of blocks. So it's like there was another shift. And that was really hard to grapple with. And But it's this. But when he's a little better, I'm always like, okay, it's going to be like this forever. And then when he's in bed right, for a couple months, I'm like, it's going to be like this forever. And the same is true of feelings for me. When I feel terror or sadness, usually the terror follows the sadness, but when I feel anxiety or grief, even if it's just for a couple of hours, even if it's just for a few moments, I'm like, oh no, am I going to be trapped here? You know, and it's this, so I think the only way out is through, but it's like, there's no, in my experience, there's no permanent out. And the more I want there to be a permanent out, the more like I'm continue. I, I, I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, in the cream of the whoopie pie, so to speak. The more you suffer, right? The more you want something that you can't have, then that's that's human suffering, right? I mean, one of my favorite Buddhist parables is the, the second arrow, which is, right? How I mean, the second arrow is the best. I mean, it's not the best, it's the worst, but it's the best <laughs> parable, right? So it's like the, there's two arrows. The first arrow we get hit with is, the arrow of experience or the arrow of a feeling like a challenging feeling like grief or a long-term disability or whatever it is, right? It's either circumstance feeling. The second arrow is what we do to ourselves. 
And it's, it's when we're already injured and then we hurl that second arrow at ourselves and it's like, what's wrong with me? Or why am I not through this? Or when will I be okay? Or am I enough? Or will I ever write again? Right? All that stuff. So yeah, you'd like ruminate on it and fixate on it and resist whatever is. And all of that self-generative or self-generated thought work essentially is the second arrow, makes it that much worse. Yes. So try not to fire the second one. And I don't know, that's hard. It's hard. I mean, that's like, I, I feel like I'm second arrowing all the time. <laughs> you know, Brad, maybe even, maybe even, th- <laughs> maybe even three, you know, like it can, you can really pile on yourself and it's easy to be hard on yourself too for like, you know, you're like sad because you've lost a loved one or you're more tired and less productive than you normally are. And you could just get, I can be so hard on myself, even in those kinds of times. And it's like, you got to be gentle with yourself sometimes, you know? Yeah. Which is like, it's, it's, well, life is in session. And so it's like, oh my God, what will happen if I don't fire the second arrow or and I, I wonder too, I was thinking about the third arrow, because I like, yeah, there's like 80 arrows. It's a whole, I don't know what the Robin Hood, like the, the, the case quiver. of it, the quiver. It's like, it's a, we're just a walk, walking quivers, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no doubt about it. Uh, so before we get any further, just for people listening who might be totally new to this subject matter, um, you've talked a bit about modalities. You talked about TM, which is Transcendental Meditation which is the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the Beatles guru and who, you know, late 20th, like mid to late 20th century. And I think even into the early 21st built TM into like a big thing. It's also very popular, I should say, among celebrities. David Lynch is a huge proponent, Jerry Seinfeld, Howard Stern. I mean, famously, there are a lot of celebs who do TM and you have what you have said uh, more than once is a mantra in TM. Uh, what is a mantra? So people who don't know what a mantra is can understand it better. Sure. So a mantra is a, I mean, it, it can be English, you know, it, it can be in English, but in, in TM, it's, it's a uh, Indian, uh, well, it's, it's a, it's a seed. It's actually a seed of a, of a so it's a sound seed. Um, and what a seed is, is it's like a part Actually, whatever, I'm probably going to get canceled for this because I shouldn't be the one to explain like what a seed is. I mean, it's all in the West now, but like I still, it's like Melissa Broder tries to explain what a Hindu seed word is. But a mantra is a word that you repeat over and over. And, and in TM, um, these seeds are, uh, they're, they, they, they're said to be imbued with different powers. And like, but for example, um, so there's also like mantra, like in yoga, you know, for example, you can do like a Ganesh mantra and Ganesh is, is, is the, rem- the remover of obstacles, right? Or you could do the Kali mantra and she's like fierce. Kali is, is a goddess who's like a fierce goddess. Ganesha is like said to be lucky, a, a god of luck and happiness. Or you can do, you could, like, I know that Mahatma Gandhi used Ram, 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 Ram for Rama. And then um, that's said to be connected to the solar plexus chakra, which uh, is strength. So there's, you know, I'm not going to get too into the the Hindu dynamics of it or the Indian dynamics of it, but essentially a mantra is, is something that you repeat over and over to, to fortify one, oneself. Yeah. And it's like, 
to to a lay person or somebody who's new to this, like it's almost like a it can, it's almost like a nonsense word, or I guess a word that you don't really have like a translation for any even that you might be focusing on or syncing up with your inhales and your exhales, and it gives you something to focus on. It's really that mm -hmm. simple, right? And then it might also be a word that is imbued with certain meaning, and by repeating it, it sort of keeps you what in a good headspace. It's like a it's like a reminder almost, and. I can, I find mantra meditation useful just as something to focus on. And I think for people who are newer, this idea that you follow, a, you repeat a mantra, usually silently, if you're doing it in meditation, or sometimes people chant them, but usually it's like a silent thing that you're just repeating to yourself in synchronicity with inhale and exhale, or you are sitting and you are just following your inhales and your exhales. And you might even even label like inhale, exhale. And there's nothing particularly magical about either. It's really just about getting you to learn how to concentrate the mind. Because one of the things that I hear over and over again, whenever I'm talking to people about meditation or they're asking me about it at like a Thanksgiving dinner table or whatever, you'll hear people say like, I can't do it. Like I can't turn my mind off. It just keeps going. Have you ever heard this? Yes. And what do you say to people? Because I think this is a misconception of meditation that needs to be clarified. It's not about, I mean, ultimately, yes, you do quiet the mind. But if you are seeing your thoughts and you are seeing the craziness of your mind and it feels like there's not an off switch, you're not doing it wrong. We all, I'm usually meditating on food. Like I'm usually thinking about like when the ice cream is that I'm going to be eating. <laughs> if you want to know the truth. Yeah. So, but yeah, no people, I don't think the point, sometimes we do get that delicious transcendent piece, but it's like, that's not necessarily, I, I wish it was all the time, but that's not like the point, right? Like I, and I, I don't know that I can say what the point is, but, um, but to observe one's thoughts, like there's not going to be no thoughts, you know, there's just not all the time, sometimes. Well, in, in TM, they talk about like the ocean and that the, the waves might, the, the surface of the ocean might be choppy, but underneath there's that quiet sea, there's that quiet darkness, right? So both can exist, right? And so I think there is this conception that like, if you're having thoughts, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, no, no, not at all. It's like, yeah, you become like, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about it is to be, to just to bear witness to that. Like, because before I started doing meditation, I, I had no idea. It was totally just running me. And then if you're sitting down consistently and bearing witness to the insanity, like my mind is all over the place. And like, in 10 different directions too. It's not like there's any even like logic to what I'm thinking. Like sometimes I'll start off and I'll be in like some sort of imagined argument with a friend of mine or, <laughs> and then I'll shift and I'll be like self-critical and then I'll shift and I'll be planning my day or imagining lunch or whatever it is, you know, and you get all of that in 20 minutes and you're like, yeah. this you is You get like, all of that in 30 seconds. It's like an opera, you know? And yeah. And so you realize like, chorus that's it, it is. And it's like, oh my God, this is like what's going on in my head all the time. And only now am I even aware of it because I'm sitting here like still and I don't have my phone in front of me or, you know, I'm not, not doing anything except sitting. And that alone is useful. And I have come to the point where I find it interesting. 
like it can be a little annoying too, but I do find it interesting just to see the mind do its thing. It's uh, it's out of control. <laughs> it's out of control. And at the same time, totally natural, right? That's, and I think that's what, like, I would say to someone who says they can't, you know, I can't meditate. I can't stop thinking. It's like, yeah, that's totally natural, right? Because, uh, like, you know, it's referred to as monkey mind. But I think, like, you know, to pathologize it or to say, like, this is wrong or bad, it's, it's, but yeah, some of us have minds that move very, very fast, right? And it's, um, you know, and it's like, are we really going to be able to, like, fully dismantle the ego? No. But I think what you said about, you know, approaching from a place of curiosity rather than believing the hype entirely to watch, to even have those just pockets of pockets of time where we can watch it, right? As opposed to being in the movie, right? It's like you're watching the movie instead of being in the deranged movie. <laughs> the chaotic, deranged movie is, is uh, that's, I think, like a good, a good starting place. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Yeah, I mean, like the mind, like this idea of, or this, uh, this notion of I'm doing it wrong because I can't stop my mind from generating thoughts. Like a good comparison for me that has always stayed with me is that like, that's what the mind does. It generates thoughts in the way that the salivary glands generate saliva. So just think of it that way. Like, yeah, you don't sit around castigating your salivary glands for generating saliva. That's just what they do. That is what mind does. It generates thoughts. And the beauty of meditating and like following the breath or doing the mantra, whatever it is, is that it does settle down over time. And that, that should be said too, because it's not just sitting in the movie theater watching the deranged movie. If you sit consistently and you, uh, for me in particular, I think if I sit for longer periods of time, sometimes I'll have a better chance of settling down just because I need more time, <laughs> you know, to just get my brain to just chill. But I will have certain sessions where there is a quieting and the movie does like slow down. Sometimes the movie stops entirely. The best. That the best. That, but oh. it, doesn't, it doesn't happen every time. The dark theater. The dark theater. That does happen for you. Oh, gorgeous. Yes. That's, I live for that. I mean, that's yeah. why, you know, that's why I was always fucked up for the first 25 years of my life because like, I love the dark theater. Oh, I love the dark 
And yeah. you you used to get that from no like previews, <laughs> no preview, no no har- no horrific previews. It's all horrific previews, right? Like right. it's always horrific because it's all about the future. So it's like these these terrifying previews of just like the doom that is to come. But oh, the dark theater, man! I just mm, give me some pretzels and M and M's and popcorn <laughs> and M and M's. Mix them up and let me just sit in that dark theater with my eyes closed. Baruch Hashem, baby. <laughs> yes. So that's what keep, but that's what keeps you coming back. And I mean, you do get a taste. Yeah. And yeah. the idea is that you get more proficient at being able to generate that state. But you also don't want to attach to that state. That's kind of the trick. Of, well, that's the thing. And right. that's what addiction is, right? I mean, we can easily bring that into meditation because it's like, and it's like, how do you integrate the, how do you integrate it all, right? Like, and it's like, sometimes there's going to be like really hellacious previews. And sometimes like, sometimes it's not even that you're watching the movie. Sometimes like the theater is filled with like, you're in, you know, those like, <laughs> you know, when you go see a play and like, they go into the audience like cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the play, I remember being as a kid, I went to see cats and like the cats are like jellical cats and they're like all in the audience and shit. And like, am I allowed? Yeah, I can curse on this, right? Of course, and I can, yeah. I can drink from, by the way, I'm very... I hope no one watches this on YouTube because I'm super self-conscious of my middle-aged woman um, ombre mug. <laughs> it's horrific. But um, that's what my mind has been saying for the past 10 minutes. Like, can, should I drink from like the, the cheesy mug? Literally, that's, that's what I've been thinking about for the past 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, so I feel like sometimes it's not even just like it's a horror movie. It's like... Like they're, like the, they're in there, you know? Like you're being called up on stage by the comedian. Like you're being heckled by the, by the, you know, by the comic and you're in the audience and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have sat in the front row. Like that's how real the mind is. Well, and it's like this idea of happiness being an obstacle, kind of obstacle too. Like one of the things that like makes a lot of sense to me and like help clarify some things for me is the fact that happiness is a form of suffering too. Like, it's not just like, oh, you know, uh, I lost a parent and I'm grieving and it's this very clear, like sadness, which we would label as like a negative feeling and life experience. Right. But then something goes well and it's like, oh my God, like my book is a bestseller or, you know, something great happened in my career, you know, and it's, it's like this source of immense elation and this positive feeling. That elation and positive feeling is actually a form of suffering because, of course, when that sort of stuff happens, you cling to it and you're like, I don't want it to go away. I like this. I want to keep this here. And of course, you can't keep it there because everything is impermanent. And so you suffer over its dissipation or that book sinking back down off the bestseller list or whatever it is, you know? So I think there's some sort of equanimity to be found in a middle ground where you're not clinging to suffering or happiness and like, you know. That's what I'm working towards. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I was doing this thing this year where, or the past couple of years, where I was so hyper-focused on like, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I, am I getting better? Am I, am I, is the depression ceasing? Is the grief ceasing? That when I sold Death Valley, okay, the day I sold Death Valley, I started horseback riding again, which was something I like adored as a child. And the day I sold Death Valley was like my second horseback riding lesson. and. I, I found out the book had sold like to Scribner, which was the publisher who did Milk Fed that, and I love them so much. So I was like very happy to be working with them again. My agent had gone back to them to try to get like, like the, their first offer. She was like, we need to get, it needs, it's worth more than this. And then, so she went back and it 
it was within like an hour that we found out that they agreed, which never happens. Usually it's like days and days. So it was like this beauty. It was like great. Right. Like it was like, and also I was really happy because my dad like knew Scribner and like, like loved a lot of the authors back in the day who had published. So it was just good. And then I go and I'm, and I'm horseback riding and I'm like, okay, my childhood dreams are like coming through. Always wanted to be a writer. Always wanted to, okay. I've sold like not just a book, but like my third novel, right. To like a, a publisher I love. And I'm on a horse and I was like, oh no, why am I filled with doom? You should be happier. And I was like, what's wrong with you that you're not happier? If, if you can't be happy now, like you, and, and that's when, and it was like, you should just kill yourself. Like if you can't be happy on the back of a horse, having just sold, like living your childhood, that's the insanity, that's the insanity, right? These expectations. But yes, I also, there is, but, but there is also when you are actually happy and you are actually sort of riding high on something that isn't just, you know, existing right or being right because you know that that bliss of of existence that you know just existence sans achievements you know without all the ego trappings like there is also that too where it's like yes this is good like yes you know like gimme like the ego is just like gimme and then what goes up must come down always well and i think like it's worth clarifying too that like it's not that you don't I'm not advocating, we're not advocating that you don't enjoy nice moments. Right. It's great. It's totally fine to be happy when like you get a book deal or something goes well in your life or like. Yeah, it's good to, it's good to be happy. When you're not, then you're like, oh no. The, the, <laughs> issue, the issue is like grabbing on to or yeah. identifying with either. Yeah. Like, oh, something goes bad. I suck. I'm a failure. I should die. Something goes right. Like, this is who I am. I've achieved something. People love me. <laughs> like, you know, because then when it goes away all of you know the opposite becomes true or it becomes this kind of sadness or you fall into this state of dissatisfaction so you know that i think gives us kind of an overview of like your history uh with meditation how you came to it some of the terms though not all of the terms you know and and modalities that people can sort of explore on their own if they're interested but i definitely want to start to zero in on the use of meditation for you when it comes to your creative work because you are super generative and prolific by i think like most people's standards like you put out a book every two years you're sort of on that cycle it seems like and that's not easy to do and you have to be really focused and hardworking, obviously but i know from knowing you a bit that meditation is definitely a part of the system you use to sort of nurture and like nurture your creative uh, creativity and to help feed the work. So can you just talk about how you do it and how you use meditation for those purposes? Absolutely. So I think for drafting uh, and for, for sort of for the ideas, for the ideas process, there's definitely, I mean, that's, that's a more, I think, straight, it's seemingly straightforward that, that ideas will come to me in meditation, right? Or that I can, David Lynch in Catching the Big Fish talks about, that's, that's his book on meditation, talks about how there are a lot of fish in the ocean, right? But you want to catch the big fish, like you want to catch like the juicy idea. And so meditation allows us to sort of see the big fish, right? To see because things, 
can become stiller. Um, I'm about to mix like 80 metaphors, but you know, but like if the pond is stiller, you, is more still, you can you can see everything much more clearly, and so you see, okay, that this is the this is the fish, right? And so, so in that sense, in the drafting sense, it's I think it's more of a more of an understandable an understandable connection. How okay, meditation, you become still. You're not there's not this there's not as much distraction towards the end of the meditation, perhaps not always, not even half the time, but sometimes. Right. And then, and then we can see, we can sort of feel really like, which we can, we can get, we can fall in, I can fall in love. I can fall in love. And and on an archetypal level, like archetypes will often come to me during meditation. So for example, the Pisces, I was on a beach when I, when I wrote my novel, the Pisces, which is about a woman who falls in love with a merman. I was on a beach in I was on the beach in Venice Beach where I was living and I was reading this book, The Professor and the Siren uh, by Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa, dead Italian guy. And the it's a book about a man recounting his love affair with a mermaid. And I was like, and then I and then I was med- and then I meditated. I hadn't meditated that morning and I meditated on the beach and, and I was like, why is there always an older man and a younger mermaid? Why isn't it ever like a, an older woman and a young merman, a young hot merman. And so it was like, I was able to sort of, a bunch of, like there's an alchemy that occurred that maybe I wouldn't have had room for all of those things to alchemize, right? Like just happening to be, like there's almost a, there was a situational component. I was on a beach that there's mountains. It looks a bit like Crete, right? So there's that Grecian element to it. I've just read this book about a man and uh, about a, a man and a mermaid. And then I've met and I'm meditating and like, oh, and the other piece was my husband and I had just become monogamous again after having an open marriage. And I had, I had had this question of why is it that a healthy long-term relationship can't, doesn't feel as good as a, like a hot, like a completely unavailable relationship that like will kill you. And like, I feel like like 15 year olds know the answer to that. But like, I was like really troubled by this quite like, I was really troubled that, that the healthy relationship where you're like, yo, can you like, can you like get me, you know, Ambisol at CVS? Like why that can't be the same as as a sort of as these as a distance. So there was like a lot of components at play. And then I think because I was meditating on the beach, there was like a synthesis that happened where all of these things, and instead of trying to figure it out or solve, to fix or solve, it sort of came to me slant through this archetype. Um, because if you think about what's the ultimate unavailable relationship, it's a human and a mer and a mer person. There's no greater unavailability than a human than somebody who has to live in the water and somebody who has to live on land. I mean, that's like pretty that your therapist is just like, mm, I don't think it's going to work, you know. So that's how meditation sort of worked to synthesize that. But what I what I think is actually even more interesting than sort of like the generative component of meditation for me is the way I've used meditation um, in the editing process. So. I'll give you, should I give you, I'll give you like two anecdotes. I, I, yeah. But before we get there, I just want to yeah. underscore, I want to underscore something. Uh, yeah. David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish. I've read it. It's an outstanding audio book because he does the vocals and like listening oh, to cool. him. Yeah. He does it in his voice. You know, he's got that like great voice and he reads the audio book. And that's, I think how I, I think I read it and I listened to it. I loved listening to it. And the reason I want to underscore it is A, because of that, and but B, because it is a particularly useful text for creative people 
interested in exploring this relationship between meditation and creativity and how one can potentially benefit the other. Like that's, that's sort of his thing, right? I mean, that's really what he's about, uh, at least, you know, in primary and it's a, uh, it's useful in that way and fun to listen to. So I want to say that. And then I want to ask, uh, a kind of follow-up question to this idea of synthesis, because as it pertains to catching the big fish, if we're going to continue this metaphor, like that is the big fish is the synthesis, right? I mean, that's kind of what you would not have noticed if you were swimming in waters that weren't quite as still, that were muddier, you know, you wouldn't have seen that process happen. You wouldn't have noticed it. So much about meditating is noticing. And so much about being a creative person is noticing maybe your best thoughts or noticing these syntheses when they happen or, or noticing things out in the world that might serve as fodder or inspiration. Like writers in general tend to be good noticers, but is that, does that square with what you think? Definitely. I mean, figure it out is not the solution, right? Like whether it's a problem in our life or whether it's like, I think that there's something that happens when we meditate that like, the answer is within Brad, right? Like it's like, but it, it's, it's, it is, it is, it's just not, in my experience, it's often in like a symbolic or a, a, a slant way, right? It's like, we, we can't solve the problem from the same like level of consciousness that like created it, so to speak. And so, and I think the same is very true in writing as well, right? And how do we get, how do we dismantle the ego? enough to get out of at least or how do we how do we get how do we how do we kind of transcend right how do we transcend it because we've we I think it's it's in we have an idea of what the story is we have an idea of what the story and then there's what the story actually is right and I think that's true like we have a problem we think we have a problem and then there's like actually the problem is like our problem with the problem the second arrow right like that's and so the, the constant like fixing and figuring it out, I'm going to figure it out, both in like, I think editing or writing and in life, like that's not the meditation gives us kind of another way, another way in. Well, yeah. And it's like, what you're saying is something that I've run up against as a writer more than once. And I think it's fairly common is that you do have some sort of philosophical or spiritual or emotional or psychological issue or, or situational issue, even that's gnawing at you. And one of the things, like one of the traps I feel like I've fallen into is that my job in, as a writer, in particular, I think as a writer of fiction is to somehow solve it and present the solution when in fact, it's maybe more, more accurate to say that the job is to articulate the question well than it is to say, you know, cause some of these things are, there isn't like a neat and tidy answer with a bow. There might be solutions to particular creative problems in the text, right? You do have to make choices as a writer in terms of how you assemble the story and how you develop the characters and all that stuff. And so I think there maybe are more concrete, quote unquote, answers to those kinds of issues, but it's the deeper stuff of the story. Like this question you talked about, like, why does like a, a relationship that's like toxic and difficult and will ultimately kill you? Why does that feel better than running to the drugstore to get your husband's medication or like cold medicine or something, you know, it's like, that is an interesting question <laughs> and there's maybe not one answer to it or if there even is like a tidy answer to it. And just by presenting that, 
I think for people and then guiding them through what, I mean, you're guiding them through a narrative. You do reach some kind of resolution, but it's rarely like tied up in a bow, right? Well, it's, yeah. And I mean, thinking about like, when I think about, um, your book, I mean, your most recent book, Be, Be Brief. And I mean, I read the first, I read the draft. It wasn't the first draft, but I read like the early draft of that. Remember? And then the way it changed. And like, I feel like the problem, I mean, the problem changed a lot, right? Like the problem of the first book was miscarriage. And the first draft, the early draft was miscarriage. And then that was no longer really the whole problem in 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 the new in, in the published version i mean it, it's kind of it's actually interesting there's always there's always a new there's always a new suffering i was gonna say it's like just give it time something else just will give it time <laughs> what you think you want will will have will come with its own challenges yeah i was just thinking about your book and just in that the, the way that it changed time but that's sort of i think in a way right like we can't we can't figure it out we can't figure it out you might have little moments of insight and levity, but it's like these deeper griefs like that we were talking about earlier. It's not about absolving yourself of them, getting rid of them, transcending them, getting past them as much as it is learning how to carry them with grace and accepting them as part of human, like not just your personal reality, but I think human reality. Like who doesn't grieve? You yeah. live here long enough, you're going to grieve, right? That's baked into the cake. It is baked into the cake. It's annoying though. The cake is annoying. <laughs> it's an annoying, it's like not my favorite flavor. Yeah. Like, you know, I like, I like, I was just having like, I was having fantasies about cake the other night. Like I was just laying in bed and I was like, oh God, I'm old because like, I'm not fantasizing about people anymore. I'm fantasizing <laughs> about cakes. So I was like, I was ranking like my favorite cakes and I'm like, I really like carrot cake, actually, with cream cheese frosting. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their favorite. I'm kind of, a, I gotta say, I like some sort of berry crumble oh, or pie. I love that. Get out of here. I'm a pie guy. I like you're a good pie. pie. You're one of those people who prefers fruit to chocolate, right? I mean, I don't know. I like it all. I'll eat. I'll eat a piece of chocolate cake too. But if you if you put oh, me in, no. you know, put both in front of me, I would probably take like the blueberry pie you'll take the berry crumble i'm sorry i that was very judgmental of me no listen and also, i brought up carrot cake that's like <laughs> what kind of bullshit is that someone who loves carrot cake is in no position to be judging berry pie i think whatever makes you happy but uh yeah. i know there are people who have strong feelings about hot fruit like if you're warming up fruit it's like it's like a violation you know of something i like, feel like hot fruit is like a late 60s like Kate ashbury band <laughs> Hot tuna, I think is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> and like strawberry alarm clock. Um, so that's let's... their that's their super group. <laughs> Hot alarm clock, I think is what it's called. Hot strawberry. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I want to kind of drill down. You talked about this experience that you had on the beach. I actually remember talking to you in close to like the immediate aftermath of that. And you were trying to like explain to me. It's like one of those things that's really hard to, I think, convince somebody else of how intense it was for you. You're like, I was on the beach. I meditated. I saw a mermaid. And you're just, I was like, okay. Like, you know, but then lo and behold, you know, it leads to an entire novel. Like it really was like a big moment for you creatively. Well, that always happens. Like when I was like, I'll try to explain, like when I was, I was driving, um, I was driving. So when my dad was in the ICU, I was driving back and forth to Vegas to see my sister. My sister lives in Vegas. And I was driving through Baker, California, which is like, it's the home of the world. Oh, pickles on the video. I um, which is the home of the world's largest thermometer. And like this idea came to me of this 
giant cactus where you could go inside and encounter your loved ones at different stages of their life. And I was, and I, I told some, some friends, like I think I told my friend Kate Durbin, you know, I told a couple of artists, I was like, yeah, and like, the, you know, it's a giant cactus and like, you know, you go inside and you, and they're like, okay, you know, like they don't, um, but actually that book, it was interesting because so Death Valley, so I was like, okay, this woman, this woman's just going to keep going back and forth from this best Western in the desert, back and forth to this giant cactus and like encountering her father and her husband as at different stages of their lives when they're young. Um, but then I did another desert recon trip. Um, so I went out to, and I ended up in Death Valley. I wasn't planning to be in Death Valley. And, um, I decided in, in the morning, I decided to go to this area called Zabriskie Point, where it's like a very touristy area. Nobody gets lost. Like nobody gets lost there. It's like extremely touristy. I got so fucking lost and I didn't have any water with me, only Coke Zero. Were you on foot? I was on foot because, and here's the thing, Brad, I wasn't paying attention. I was on my phone. So here was, I was, I was on my phone. I wasn't being mindful. I was not observing anything about where I was. I was taking notes as I was walking, like of the different shrubbery and stuff for my desert book that I was writing. I got so lost. I was like, my phone was dead or my phone, the reception was gone and I, I lost service. Um, I'm like crying. Like, how long have I been out here? It had been like, you know, 30 minutes. I got really cut up. Like I got really messed up trying to get back, trying to get back. I had climbed up this rock face um, and got all scraped up. I got back to my car and like by the time, and I stopped crying. And when I stopped crying, I was like, oh, now I know what needs to happen in this novel. My carrot, my protagonist is going to get lost in the desert. So sometimes actually being, not being mindful and non-meditative and not paying attention actually can, can help us can help us write. But again, I think it's like this being open to the alchemy, right? And, and, and then I had to decide like, oh, like, oh, is this going to be a desert survival story? I was not planning that, you know? And um, okay. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So I have questions like, yeah. uh, Like when it comes to things like the, the merman in the Pisces or this giant, the giant cactus cactus inspired by the thermometer in Baker, California, which anybody who's ever driven from LA to Vegas knows that thermometer, right? You see it from the freeway and it advertises itself well, but you have these ideas, these things kind of flower in your mind, like, oh my God, this giant cactus. And then you tell your friends and they're sort of like, okay, you know, and the question that I shouldn't have told anyone, (laughs) (laughs) but you wait until you read my novel. Right. But the question that I have, and I think might you know, some people at home might be asking is like, wow, you know, I meditate and I have these sorts of thoughts sometimes, or I don't meditate and I have these sorts of thoughts. How do you know when you really have one? How do you grade and discern among the various fish? I guess like it's just persistent or it's so big and glaring that you just know it. Cause I think part of any writer's gift or creative person's gift is sort of knowing when they have a big fish on the hook and when they don't. It's something that you might be, you might get better at as you go through the years is learning how to notice what you notice and learning how to recognize a good idea when you have one. Like, can you just talk a little bit about that part of it for you? And also maybe if there's anything to add in terms of how meditation helps that. Sure. So I think I have to fall in love. It's like, I can't not do it. You know, when I can't not tell this, it's like I fall in love. 
I fall in love with an image. I fall in love with a story. It's like, and I feel like the process of writing a novel is like any long-term relationship. Like, like it's good if it starts hot, you know, like it's good to have that heat in the beginning. Cause like, I don't know, 10 years in, 15 years in, it's hard to keep that fire burning. Right. So it's, it's, but you're, you, and, and it may not be like, hot in the sense of you're like, I'm on fire. Because I think then there's sometimes, right, like you can feel on fire about an idea and then it like peters, right? There's sort of like when it's just lust and not and not love. But there's a, I think when it's just, yeah, it's like, it, it, it's like a marriage or it's like a lot, it's, it's like a relationship. Like you just sort of know. And I think also you, there have been times, like I wrote this novel that remains in a drawer that like, kind of like I just kind of knew I was like fooling myself with this idea like that like I didn't give that like I didn't I wasn't tormented by it you know like I wasn't and I wasn't like well obsessed I could take it or it's obsession it's obsession yeah it's like it's just like this is this is the one yeah yeah. That's what it is. It's interesting how like, you know, obsession, which like in a, you say you're dealing with OCD, like obsessive thinking and obsessive behavior or whatever can be problematic, right? For all of us, if you get too fixated on something, it can end up kind of uh, torturing you or causing trouble for you. But when it comes to cr- like writing a novel and sticking with it over the long term, which we must, if we're going to see these things through, noticing when you're really obsessed about something and having some sort of familiarity with that feeling or that operation within you can be useful. Like you can put it to work for you is the point, right? Definitely. And that's like when I was like really hitting bottom with, with, with uh, like my med changes and like with the, with the OCD, which I didn't even know I had. I mean, I like it's my friends are like, of course you have OCD. Like everyone's like, yeah, like you've had it your whole life, but I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't know really until this year or like wasn't diagnosed until this year, but like, you know, like the therapists I was working with at the IOP were just like, you need to be writing. You need to be writing. Like there's no, you know, um, and not writing, like not doing a journal project cataloging, you know, your mental health. (laughs) You need to be writing fiction, right? Because it's that, and that's, I think like to parallel it to meditation, right? It's like we have the thoughts, we have, but then there can be this juicy springboard, right? And that, and, and there's an alchemy and there's a, the dark theater, right? And it's, um, and it's not, we're not going to get it all the time, right? Like not every idea is good and not every thought is a keeper. In fact, most of them are not keepers, you know, better to not. But I think, yeah, I do believe like, I do believe our blessings are our curses. And it's actually, I remember years ago, I went to see, um, I went to the New Yorker festival and I remember someone asked, and Fiona Apple was being interviewed, and someone, this was like a long time ago, and and the interviewer said to her, like, is it worth it to be so, is it worth it to be so troubled to be such a genius, right? And she was like, how do I even answer that question? She's like, like, I have a choice, right? And I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I am troubled. And, um, you know, but I do think that, like, any talent that I have, like, there is like it is the flip side, right? Like the, like you're saying, you know, you can put your, put your OCD to good use like that, that the obsession and in a way, like right, the act of writing a novel is, can, it can be seen as a compulsion, right? It is repetitive. Editing is repetitive to keep going back again and again 
to this thing is kind of insane, but it's like, um, but it's the solution to an obsession or it's the, and it's, it's, it's the pot, it's a positive one. Well, I think it's also for certain people, maybe more the case that their art really is part of a system that helps them a make sense of their lives and, you know, synthesize a variety of different thoughts and feelings and whatnot, but it's also a survival thing. Like I do feel like there are artists and you're one of them that it's like how you survive. It's part, it's a central part of how yeah. you survive is to write fiction, which is I, I think why your therapist was like, you need to be writing. And poetry. And, yeah. Yeah. And because it's like, it's this word synthesis keeps coming back up. It's like, yeah, you're meditating, you're recognizing the ephemerality of your thoughts and feelings and getting familiar with the things that you're obsessed with and that are really bothering you. And you're working your way through these big feelings and learning how to carry them. But then on the writing side of it, it gives you a way of synthesizing it and maybe further deepening your understanding. I, you know, I know people have different feelings about the therapeutic value of writing. And I'm not suggesting that you're merely writing fiction for therapeutic purposes, but it does have, from my perspective, a therapeutic effect in the aggregate when you work through a book with like thematic concerns that have to do with deep grief, just as one example in Death Valley. When you finish that project and you send it out into the world, it's not that there's like full closure or anything like that, but you, it did serve some purpose in that regard, no? Definitely. I mean, actually, it's funny because, by the way, this whole time there's been this beam of light just shining right through the center of your forehead. <laughs> right. You just move, so now it's on the side. And I'm like, uh, it's so perfect for the meditation episode. <laughs> that the, is wild. It's my sky. I mean, there's a skylight in this room, and this time of year, the sun is at just the right place. So there's nothing I can do about these solar. It's beautiful. It's like you. All that meditation is paying off. That's right. That's right. <laughs> It's like you're like a, it's like a unicorn horn of enlightenment. It's a halo. Actually, By the way, it sort of looks like you're being stabbed. In the I lied. There is not a skylight. I don't know what that is, but it just happens to be emanating from me. I guess it's uh, something. It's your, you know, keep my practicing. Inner, my inner light. It just can't contain. You know, my skull cannot light. contain. It's your inner light. Um, what were we talking about? I don't even know. I got oh, just like the therapeutic benefit. Oh yeah, you know, and like writing Death Valley and. I know, you know, you lost your father and that's a big thing to grapple with. And like you're grappling with it in this book to some degree. Yeah. And like at the end of the process, there is some therapeutic benefit. You do reach some deeper understanding or no? Well, it was the whole time I was writing the book, I felt like I had this forward motion with my dad and like this, this sort of the, the alchemy of it, right? Like what you're talking about in terms of writing being like taking pain and and like like I always see it as like like an oyster with sand in its shell right and like you writers write an oyster emits this fluid emits this fluid emits this fluid around this sand in its shell and I'm not saying like good writing is therapy like you know it's not a diary but um but there but it's like you're doing I do it because I have to do it I just have to do it and um and then sometimes you get a pearl and sometimes you don't Right. And, but it can be therapeutic along the way. But then when I finished the book, that's when I like kind of fell apart, like to, because it was like, oh, we no longer have any forward motion together. You know, like the, there was this sort of forward motion I had with my dad the whole time I was um, writing the book. I'm looking at a picture of my dad on my shelf right now. He looks like a uh, 80s uh, 
leader of a drug cartel with his bro <laughs> and his mirrored sunglasses. But um, hi, dad. But uh, but yeah, it was. You know, I did feel like. I mean, I don't. I don't know that my dad would have wanted to be written about, but it doesn't matter because it's fiction anyway. You know, it's like, but um, especially not written about in in this context. You know, like what it's like to have someone, you know, in the ICU on life support in and out of consciousness on a feeding tube for six months, right? Like that's, it's not how you like want to necessarily be portrayed, but because the book's really about like anticipatory grief, but I think in a way it was like a way of keeping him alive and staying in what was, what had been such an awful time, but also those moments are so precious at the end of someone's life when you get, and, and when you get to, I mean, I was, a, I was a, like, I was able to spend after the, after once we were allowed in the hospital, when COVID sort of simmered down, like I was able to spend like, I kept flying back and forth to the East Coast and I was able to spend like this beautiful time with him. And, you know, and so, and the book was really an extension of that. And then once I finished writing, and that's, I think in some ways, I think like, I don't know. I mean, I've never canceled a book tour and I am someone with anxiety disorder, lifelong anxiety disorder. So it's, it's interesting that this is the one where it, I, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I think that there's, I'll say this. And this is actually goes back to what we were saying about wanting to be done. The book Death Valley really explores like grief as a desert, right? And and when you're lost in the desert and, you know, what do you do in, and what do you do when you're lost in the desert? What do you do when you're lost in grief? Like you have to keep moving. You have to keep walking. You have to also like go with the terrain and it looks very barren, but there's also these beautiful oases within the desert, right? Like the desert is teeming with life. But the thing is, is that my character in the book, the protagonist, she does come to a sort of resolution, right? And she does, it's not a neat ending and I'm not going to, but it, but it's emotionally, right? Like all of our characters, there's an arc and then they get to disappear on the last page, but we keep walking with these very issues that troubled us. And even if they've changed, right? Like even if the issue, you know, like with your, with, with, with be brief, even if, I mean, I've literally seen the concerns change between the first draft and the draft that was published. I mean, the first draft was so different. And so I think that, um, but the character gets to have an arrival, even if it's not an ending that's tied up in a bow, there is sort of, because, because they disappear on the last page, but the writer keep has to keep walking. Right. So like the only way out is through Yes, for our characters, but not for us. And I think there was like a feeling of it's like emotional fraudulence in a way that made it hard for me to do events for this book because I was like, really, I was like, okay, my character is sort of okay towards the end of this book, but like, I'm not okay, you know? And, and, that's, and then that's the second arrow, right? And I would say maybe I would even go as far as to say that the third arrow may be, um, may be writing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's like when it's super personal and kind of raw, you know, material that you're working from, lived experience that you're working from, doing events can be hard. I felt that for sure. I was like, ugh, the last thing I want to do is read from this book in front of people. <laughs> like, like, just read it. I want people to read it, but it's like getting up in front of people and like doing an event. I, I think I have issues with that in general. I'm not a writer who loves readings. Uh, that's just my personal taste on it. I don't, you know. No, who likes reading? Some people love them. They love events, and like I, you know, have to each their own. I don't want to like poo-poo somebody's good time, you know. But 
for me, it's like, I wrote the book, I'll put it out in the world. Like, if you want to read it, read it. It's all yours. Go have a private moment with it. I'm not going to stand in front of you and read it to you. (laughs) The best is when a publisher, I like doing interviews because I I like talking about the work, but the best is when a publisher is like, do you want to write like a person, like an essay, you know, to kind of tie into the, and I'm like, I just wrote a book. Right. Like, what, I got to write an essay about, like, (laughs) about the book? No. No. I said what I I want to say. Yeah. Like, I, you know, 10 ways that, you know, 10 ways that that the desert is like grief. No. Mm -mm. (laughs) I wrote the book. It's in the book. No listicles. We're not doing listicles. It's not happening. Um, not happening. All right. So, okay. So, we've kind of talked about... creative genesis and drafting and the use of meditation and how it can be helpful to that part of the process where you're kind of noticing what you notice and then you're able to synthesize things and maybe even notice that synthesis while you're meditating. But there are also creative benefits that you have derived from meditation in the ed- uh, in the editorial process. You mentioned it a little bit ago that you know you can use it when you're editing as well. But I want to drill down into that. And if you could give an example of how meditation has been helpful to you as you've gone about editing, that would be great. And I think there's a story you were telling me about MilkFed where that came into play at like the what, the Crown Plaza Hotel or something. It, where, all, where all the great books are born. <laughs> I was going to say. What city was this in? I'm curious. New York. Oh, it was. Okay. New York. So when I was on book tour for the Pisces, I had written many drafts of milk fat and I'd sent it to my agent and my agent said, um, that, and, and just for those who don't know, milk fat is the story of a, um, reform, like a, like a mall Jew, like a reformed Jewish woman, uh, um, with an eating disorder who falls madly in love with a very Zoftig Orthodox Jewish woman who, um, works at a frozen yogurt shop in Los Angeles. And so, um, and the, and the Zoftig woman is Miriam and the, the reformed Jewish woman with the eating disorder is Rachel. And so I had sent it to my agent and my agent said, I saw my agent when I was in New York and she said, you know, I think this is, this is going to work. But she was concerned that Rachel, the reformed Jewish woman, um, that like she was objectifying Miriam, this other character. And she's like, maybe we need more of Miriam's voice because it like wasn't clear, like, is Rachel objectifying me? Isn't she? Or is she, is, are we seeing Miriam? Like, it wasn't clear. Are we seeing Miriam through Rachel's eyes? Like, is that supposed to be the case? Right. Which is fine. But like, then make it clear that like, this isn't sort of a like omniscient view of Miriam. This is Rachel's perspective. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess I'll write. Maybe am I going to do like one of those alternating chapter things where there's different character voices? Like, what am I going to do? So I go back to the Crown Plaza where I'm staying and I meditate. And while I'm meditating, I, this, idea of the golem comes to me, which one of my favorite books, The Puttermesser Papers by Cynthia Ozick is about, and a golem is, it started in, in the Jewish tradition. It's, it's, it's like a Frankenstein. So it's a character, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a doll or a, an entity that you shape out of clay and then, or you shape out of dirt and then is, um, and then life is breathed breathe it into it. And usually with the golem, it's like it starts out as something that then um, is to help your people, but then it, it ends up running amok, right? Like Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. So I'm like, what am I going to, what am I going to do about this problem that I have? And I was like, well, what about, what if Rachel in therapy <laughs> with her therapist shapes out of clay, like this figure that she's so afraid of becoming, like what she, what she's so afraid of happening to her body with her eating disorder. 
And this all came to me in meditation, like this idea of the golem. And then also in that same meditation, I was like, and what if there's a rabbi that she's imagining? Like, what if the rabbi of Prague, Rabbi Judah ben Lo, Rabbi Judah Lo ben Bezalel, who was like the original creator of the golem, like, what if she starts having visions of him? And this way, we know that Rachel is a character who's very capable of imagining things, of projecting things. And so we know that the Miriam we are seeing is clearly Rachel's projection because this is a character who is, who is perceived. And also now there's this question too of, is Rachel conjuring Miriam? I don't think Rachel conjured Miriam, but we have this, this golem that she sculpts out of clay and then the golem goes missing and then she suddenly meets Miriam and it's sort of like, and this character is like, wait a second, did I conjure this person? And that lets us know as readers that, or that lets the reader know that like, okay, this is a character who's clearly capable. Like we are really seeing Miriam through her eyes, right? It's not, and that's where, is she objectifying her? Absolutely. You know, she is projecting a lot. She's also imagining, she's fully imagining this rabbi of Prague and she's now having a relationship with him. So what I did was I then like, in like wove, the golem and the rabbi into the book. And they're, they're like major. I mean, the rabbi is like a major character in the book and they ended up being, the rabbi ended up being actually my favorite character in the book, probably because I spent the least time with him because I had been with the other characters for so much longer. So that's like one way that, um, you know, meditation can really, really help me with the editing process. Well, it's interesting um, too. I mean, it's like, I, I was thinking as you were talking, like this golem, this rabbi, this is the mystery of creativity. Like, where the fuck did they come from? Like, obviously they're somewhere in your wiring, but they're also somewhere like in the ether and you sit down and you quiet down to some extent and they appear to you, they emerge and you notice them. And it's this solution to a problem that has, I guess, recently been presented to you by your agent, you know, and in the absence of that meditation uh, session, Maybe it doesn't, or maybe it comes a long time after. I guess we'll never know, but. Or maybe, it, right, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're, you're trying to figure it out. I got to puzzle this out, you know? But instead it sort of just floated up and, you know, you noticed it when it happened and it was really, truly pivotal. Like it really made the book. It made the book make sense, but it also added this, like these necessary layers that, you know, I think make it succeed in, to some extent at least. And that's fascinating. And. I know too what there was, you were saying something to me about a Siberian shamanic meditation. I cannot leave this conversation without hearing you talk about it because I had to like Google this. I was like, okay, I know there's a strong shamanic tradition in Siberia and there's a meditation modality born out of that, that you're familiar with. Is that right? There is, there is. So I'm not that familiar with it. Basically what happened was um, you know, Libby, the, the audiobook, uh, so like the library app, Libby. Okay. Um, so I was, so I took out this book right a couple months after my dad died that was like guided shamanic meditation. Cause I was very into, like, I wanted to, I was very into signs at the time. And I was just sort of like, I had all these, like thought I had all these signs for my dad. And this woman studied under the Siberian tradition and I can't get canceled cause I'm Russian. Um, so it's great. <laughs> It was great. So I can talk about this freely. So it was Siberian shamanism and I am East, fully 100% Eastern European, Lithuanian, Polish, Russian. Um, so I'm like, great. This is like my people, whatever. So I'm doing these guided meditations. In one of them, you ask it a question. And my question was, how do I know that my father is still with me? And then in the meditation, you're told you, you journey to the upper realm. You journey to the upper realm. 
I can't, I still can't tell you what the upper realm is, but, um, so there are different ways. She gives different ways that you can journey to the upper realm. You can ride up on a smokestack. You can climb up a rainbow. So I close my eyes. I'm sitting right where I am now on this. I have a, I don't have a desk in my office. I have a, I have a lounger. I write on a lounger and I had pickle on my lap as he is. And he was probably being as disruptive as he is right now, <laughs> growling. And I'm sitting there and I, in this meditation, I'm not a very visual person. Like I don't always have images coming to me all the time, as much as it might seem like it from this podcast, but I'm not super visual. I think in words usually. And um, all of a sudden, like I imagine that I was riding on this bird up to this upper realm and I've got pickle on my lap and I'm riding on this bird and I just knew the bird was my dad. And it was like, of course I'm with you. I'm always with you. Not in a like Bette Midler wing beneath my wings way, but just like, like it was like, of course it was like, how could you even think I'm not with you? You know, like you are riding on this bird. All right. So fast forward a year later, I've been writing Death Valley for a, a year and or over a year actually. Cause I had, yeah, it was like probably like 15 months and I'm, um, and I, I'm at this part of the book where the character has been lost in the, in the desert and, um, she's like out of water, out of food. I didn't know. I had to read the, I had to read a book on, um, that was like a desert survival manual, but like a, for military to like, and it actually really informed the plot. Um, but I had to read this book cause I, I know nothing about survival. Like I brought Coke zero <laughs> into the desert basically and no water. Like that's how much I know about survival. So she knows, she knows more than me, but not that much more this protagonist. But so I'm like, how, so she needs to get up this mountain and she's injured. She, she, she broke her foot. And, uh, and I'm like, how am I going to get this bitch up the mountain? Like, I'm like, oh, and, and the books were coming towards the end. I'm like, how am I going to get her up the mountain? And so I go through my notes and I had written down bird, like in my page of notes for Death Valley. Like I have this, I keep this long, simple note doc with just stuff that might go in, stuff that might not go in. And it was all the way at the bottom because it had been so early. And I was like, bird. And I was like, holy shit. She's going to fly up on this bird. Now I know that sounds like, how are you going to make her? But it, it does work. But so then what, so I named the bird mustache Oriole because my father had a mustache and um, the her father in the book has a mustache. The character of the father is not my father, but the mustache needed to live. Like the mustache. Right. Right. The mustache must be preserved. And so, and then what I did was I wove mustache Oriole in like throughout the book. Cause you can't just like introduce a bird at the end. Like, oh yeah, she's just going to ride up on a damn bird. I mean, even if this is a person who's seeing like, who's going into giant cacti, right? Like you can't just bring in, it's like Chekhov's bird, but in reverse, right? Like, you know, if, if the bird, if she's flying up on a bird, the bird needs to be there from the beginning. So then that's the work. I had a poetry teacher who once said to me, you can do anything you want in a poem, but first you have to teach the reader how to live in it. And then you can do whatever you want. And so that's what I, you know, that's what I did. And Mustache Oriole lives. And it was all because I had had that meditation like 12 months before where I'd written on this bird from an audio book I, I was listening to for free on Libby about about shamanic meditation. So there it was. Well, two things that I'm taking away. One is that in two, two of your books, at least, you've had an editorial process that involved finding a kind of creative solution or some tweaks to make that you then wove throughout the entire text. It wasn't just like a drop in at a certain point in the book. It was something that you had to weave into the entire text in order for it to work. And then the second takeaway is that Sometimes the benefits creatively that you derive from a session of meditation might not be immediately apparent, but can emerge later. Keeping a note, a notebook or like a notes file 
of things that occur to you both in your day-to-day life. It doesn't have to be while you're in a a seated meditation. It could be while you're at the grocery store or anywhere. You jot things down. I know writers can benefit from that. But maybe particularly when you're in this kind of contemplative state and you're trying to kind of settle and go deeper, the stuff that emerges there might often, or like you might have a higher batting average of useful stuff, you know, and it's, it's, but it's worth writing down because this stuff is slippery. At least if you're me, I can forget things so easily. So I think those are the two things that I heard you say that I'm taking away. Is there anything you would add or subtract from that? No, I mean, that's keep Yeah. Keep, keep a diary, baby. Keep a notebook. It's useful. Mine's on my phone, but yes. yes. Um, so I know you got to run, but I think the last couple things I want to talk about are just kind of like a reiteration or a review of things that we've sort of already touched on for people who are listening in particular, who might be newer to meditation or might be spotty, you know, and they're like, I kind of want to maybe do it and integrate it with their writing, but maybe have trouble keeping the discipline. Like something I have noticed, and I think it's probably true for everybody, is that there is often resistance not always, but especially, I don't know, depends on the day, depends on how long you've been practicing, how maybe used to it you are. But there can often be resistance to stopping because that is what meditation, I think, the, like the first part of it anyway, is just getting yourself to the cushion. You've got to stop. You've got to put the phone down. You've got to put everything down. And you've got to sit there and probably close your eyes, though I know some people keep their eyes open. But you just sit still you stop. And even for me, years I've been doing this, decades. And sometimes I'll be like, especially in the evening, uh, I don't want to, there's like this resistance to stopping. Do you feel that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, this morning I was like, let's buy candles. (laughs) Diptyque. That's what I was going to tell you. Those are great candles. (laughs) Diptyque are lovely. It's a lovely, what's your favorite diptyque? Oh God, if you said it, I would know. I haven't got one. Bay, berries, the berries one? Maybe so. I don't know. They're just- Maybe feu de bois, feu de bois. The the thing I like about them is that they, the smell really is like, it carries. Like you can can cover a whole section of your house with one little candle. I love what a basic bitch you are, Brad. I I mean, (laughs) now I know what to get you for the rest of your life. I'm like, Brad loves dip tea candles. That's so endearing. They are the best. They are. I like, you know, because some of them, they go fast. They don't smell that great. Or if they do smell, it's like, it doesn't really, you have to like be like like, standing over it in order to like derive the benefits. But, um, but yeah, so stopping is, is hard and it's hard for everyone and you're not doing it wrong if there's resistance. But what I would add to that is that, and I would then ask you to sort of like join in and share whatever thoughts you have on it, is that even on those days where I'm like struggling to stop and to just get to the cushion and sit down, usually by the end of the session, it's not an issue at all. Like that goes away. So for somebody who's newer to it, I think that's important to underline is that like that's normal, but like just sit down. And if you stick it out through like the 20 or 30 minutes or whatever it is that you sit for, uh, it's going to- Or five if you're new. Or five if you're new. Cause like, five think, if you're nasty. Yeah, right. But that's a good point too, is that like sometimes by giving yourself more achievable goals, it's easier to build a habit than it is to like give yourself this, like I'm going to sit for an hour and you're yeah. miserable, you know? <laughs> um, but but yeah. I, do, I do think you're right though. Like 20, 20 minutes seems to be a really good sweet spot in the sense of- like I can be like resisting for 15 and then like usually the last five is when I like trans- transcend a bit more. Yeah. So the there's just- The theater goes darker. 
the theater i i find yeah i'm a person who needs i think maybe because i have a noisier brain or something but like i'm like if i can sit for an hour that's the best oh because like it's delish because like what happens is that like i go through i know there's going to be like the first half of it at least sometimes the whole thing even like for an hour i'll just be sitting there watching this circus unfold you know or whatever (laughs) sometimes i just talk my it's like you talk yourself out you know i'm just my brain is just jabbering at me and i keep like i'll go to my breath and then the brain will take over and all of a sudden i'll like i will be lost inside some crazy mental theater for like what five seven ten minutes before I even realize that I've been lost. Totally. And then you go back to your breath and you have to have a little bit of gentleness and good humor towards yourself, no matter how many times it takes. And it will take even in a single session, dozens of times where you kind of fall off the horse, right? And then you get back on, you go back to your breath. Like that's normal. And I think people need to hear that because like people go, oh my God, I'm just crazy. I can't do this, but that's it. No matter how many times you fall, gently just go back to your breathing. Don't castigate yourself. If you castigate yourself, notice that. Then yeah. gently go Don't back. Don't castigate yourself for castigating. <laughs> right. So there's that. The 80th arrow. Yes. And then the other thing is that, and I think this is a good place to close, is that in my understanding of meditation is that it's not necessarily like, it is a thing you do. And it is like a ritual practice that you can derive benefits from if you say do seated, seated meditation every single day and you try to be disciplined about it. I think there's great benefit to be derived. I think science is sort of corroborating this as we speak, you know. I think that's why it's become mainstreamed in a lot of ways. It's not something you believe in, it's something you do. It's not something that is has to be tied to a particular religious practice mm-hmm. or any of that. It's totally non-denominational and uh what's the word for it? secular, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the deeper you go into it and the more you build it into your life, the more you start to try to carry it with you, even when you're not sitting. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of it is that like, you shouldn't really consider like meditation to be an isolated session. There's meditating while sitting, there's meditating while walking. There is such a thing as walking meditation that people do. There's meditation while lying down. So if you're in bed and you're, you know, in between wake and sleep, you could be meditating. Like, the ideal is that you're really kind of like always meditating and always aware. And that's like maybe the, the place. Who among that, us. Yeah, who among us. But that's like maybe the <laughs> ideal that you're sort of striving toward. But mm-hmm. the, the reason why I mention it is that you have benefited from this very thing, even though you, you, know, you might not have even been try, like thinking of it in those terms. But it's like the meditation on the beach in Venice where you're out and about. And, you know, you're kind of like, oh, the water, oh, this, and you're synthesizing these things. That sort of stuff doesn't happen unless you have a kind of situational awareness after the session where you recognize, you recognize what you recognized or the bird or, you know, whatever it is, the, the, the bits that we pick up as creative writers that we then jumble together and put into our fictions. That stuff happens in moments of awareness off the cushion usually and Mm -hmm. not in what we would consider to be an isolated meditation session. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. So it's like, it's the kind of thing that I think seated meditation as a ritualized practice helps to strengthen those muscles, but you can do it and you can and should do it anywhere. And like just being aware of your thoughts and aware of what's going on, like within you and around you, that is mindfulness, right? Uh, And it can be useful to a creative person 
to have maybe like a heightened level of that. I, I mean, I think so. Yeah. Totally. No, I think you're right. In you and around you. Like the Beatles. That's, yeah, yeah. Life, yeah. life flows on within Brad and around Brad. <laughs> Why am I quoting songs? I feel like. Uh, no, I love it. There was, a, mo- it. There was a Motown moment earlier. We're in there the was. 60s. We're in the 60s, which is where we, we probably are. should be. Hot fruit, baby. Yeah, hot fruit. That's it. Um, but Brad, I just wanted to say, um, as we wrap, that you know, this ins- you this doing this podcast actually, and knowing we were going to talk about meditation, inspired me. I actually impulsively posted on Instagram yesterday. I'm going to do like lead like a once a week different. It'll be different day every week or a different time every week. But uh, meditation for writers, um, just like a guided meditation, and maybe with like a writing prompt. I actually don't know exactly what I'm going to do, and it'll be free. Donations will be welcome, you know, but, but it's free. Anyone can, can come and, um, you just email me, uh, eating at eating alone in my car at gmail.com because I was thinking, cause I, I taught a class last year and talked about this and, and people seemed, the, the kids seemed to be really interested in, I, I, I just think that there's, I think there are, and I think there are a lot of writers who meditate. So it could be cool for us to do it all together on zoom. It's going to be on zoom. On zoom. Okay. So yes. You heard it here first. Did we just break news? I guess you broke we it. We just on broke news. Yeah, we, I broke yesterday. Okay, well, that's eating great. alone in my car. And that's now great. I'm like, am I going to regret this? But I don't think I will because I can always just stop doing it. But for now, it's going to happen. That's cool. That's cool. And I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about is just trying to be more creative and get better creative work done as writers. And like, yes. that's really what it's all about. So, I love talking with you. It's great to see you. It's great to see Pickle. So your, good to see you. Your Thank lovely you. dog who is like, I believe, staring at you right now. Is he just looking? He, I saw Twiggy in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hi, Pickle. Hi, yes, buddy. my angel. <laughs> you've, got, you've got Brad's dog who is the ultimate in trained, and you've got my dog who is the ultimate in completely untrained <laughs> and untrainable. All right. Well, on that note, it's great to see you. Great to talk to you. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Brad. It's so good to see you. And thanks for having thanks for having me. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Melissa Broder, all about how meditation can inform creative writing. Melissa's latest novel is called Death Valley, available now from Scribner. You can find her on the internet at melissabroder.com. Follow her on social media, Twitter, Instagram, maybe even Facebook. I don't know. She's all over the place. Track her down. And don't forget to go get your copy of Death Valley and all of her books. Get the entire smorgasbord of Melissa Broder work wherever books are sold. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to shows. You can also follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe to my weekly email newsletter for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. Join the other people Patreon community. Help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have a moment and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you want to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And last but not least, a quick plug for my latest book. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is a novel available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. I will read it to you. 
It makes a great stocking stuffer. It's a book. I wrote it. It's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Lauren Elkin, author of a new book called Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art. It is available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I had a very fascinating conversation with Lauren Elkin. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you soon, so stay tuned.